Hello and welcome to Wooden Teeth, a podcast about truth-telling on politics and health. I'm your host, Jake Williams. Today's truth. We need some fresh public policy ideas to improve public health and equity in America. So, I asked four of my colleagues here at Healthier Colorado to identify a policy idea that caught their attention and then come on the pod to share it. In a moment, you'll hear idea pitches from Stuart Jenkins, Sabrina Pacha, Andreas Dojsavljevic, and Michael Ruddick. I asked them not to tell me in advance what they'd be pitching in hopes that it would prompt some of the same questions that you might have when these ideas hit your ears as well. Before we get to those conversations, I wanted to do a little self-plug. There is uh, a delivery of another set of ideas, this time in book form. There is a book just out titled Public Health Under Siege, Improving Policy in Turbulent Times, which explores the impact of policy on our nation's health and offers some specific actions to improve health and well-being. I was really grateful to be a contributing author of this book and shout out to the De Beaumont Foundation for the invitation to do so. Thank you. I wrote a chapter about building political power for public health. And so if you'd like to check it out, you can just Google public health under siege book, and you should see the link to buy it from APHA Press. Okay, let's hear this first idea. And it comes from Stuart Jenkins, who is our advocacy manager here at Healthier Colorado. So what would you say it is you do around here at Healthier Colorado? I uh, am one of the people, persons <laughs> around here at Healthier Colorado. Uh, my role is to engage our members um, in our work in passing uh, policies that improve the lives and health of people here in Colorado. So you like the connection between us and quote unquote regular people. That's, that's the idea. That's what I do. Okay. So pretend I'm a regular person. And give me your 30 seconds or less pitch on your idea. So my idea will not be popular with probably many people on this podcast, uh, but I would like to set a minimum price uh, for alcohol here in Colorado. The basic idea is that alcohol is too cheap, um, but it imposes a lot of societal costs. So the idea is by establishing a minimum price, we uh, target heavy drinkers uh, who rely on uh, cheap alcohol to get drunk. So this would be a targeted policy that would provide public health benefits across society. So where do you think the money should go if we raise ta- if we raise the if we raise the price of alcohol, we should get more tax revenue. Where would the money go? So it, it works in two ways. The the first being that any excess revenue generated by the minimum price goes directly to the businesses. Um, in the second way, that increased revenue um, goes to more taxes to the government. In theory, those could go to the same places where they do now on alcohol you know, prevention and control um, and, and public awareness campaigns and things like that. But I, I think the uh, benefit of this policy is that um, this is not necessarily more money in the hands of government. This is keeping money in communities, into local economy, um, and into uh, small businesses. So you referenced the fact that people who drink a lot of alcohol to get drunk would be affected by um, 
a minimum price on alcohol. Some might also say that people of lower incomes would also be affected by that policy. What would you, your response be to that objection? So that's true, but I think that only tells half the story. Um, research that's been done by um, public health experts um, in Britain have found that the low-income people also see the largest health benefits as a result of a minimum unit price on alcohol. Uh, they found that um, on almost an 82% reduction in premature deaths and an 87% gain in terms of quality-adjusted life years among low-income drinkers. So the reality is that um, low-income drinkers are, in fact, the heaviest drinkers in society. So it is part of the point to reduce the negative impacts of alcohol, and it does fall on, on these drinkers more. Why would you raise the or set a minimum price rather than just raise taxes on alcohol instead? So uh, the way alcohol is taxed now is through an excise tax at the federal, state, and local level. These taxes apply to all alcoholic beverages across the board, whereas a minimum price could be targeted on specific alcoholic beverages or specific types of alcohol like beer or wine or spirits. So it doesn't have to be an across the board uh, kind of measure, so it can be more targeted in that way. Um, and it's something that businesses get to keep, um, which I think is a unique kind of political upshot to the policy. And you mentioned the fact that, not the fact, the suspicion or the contention that this proposal wouldn't be uh, popular with listeners of the podcast. Tell me more why you think that and like what you think the political viability of, of this sort of idea would be. So um, given that we're recording this in Colorado, you know, Colorado is known um, as one of the craft brewery capitals in the country, maybe even in the world. Um, in, and we've made a lot of moves in recent years to liberalize uh, drinking policy here in Colorado. Just this year, the state legislature passed a bill that would extend uh, to-go alcohol orders um, to 2025. Uh, a few years ago, lawmakers uh, cut a deal with the uh, small package industry to uh, sell full-strength beer in grocery stores and supermarkets. So um, this, <laughs> for many reasons, that, that would be unpopular and, and people would see these prices, you know, um, in their grocery bills or, uh, or purchases. So I, I think politically it, it may be difficult in that way. But in another sense, I think this does support um, the small uh, liquor stores here in Colorado that have really lost out on those deals. And Colorado is not unfamiliar with setting a minimum price. Uh, voters, whether they know it or not, actually approved a minimum price on a pack of cigarettes uh, when we, they passed Proposition EE uh, last fall. So, um, of course, not it wasn't without consequences or without raising ire, um, but it does kind of divide uh, private business in, in different ways um, and I think could be uh, an interesting intersection for public health advocates and small liquor stores here in Colorado. And have other jurisdictions anywhere in the U.S. or around the world done this? Has this been practiced before? So uh, for some of these progressive policies, you can obviously look to uh, across the Atlantic <laughs> to find examples. Uh, Scotland was the first country to do this uh, at a national scale in, in 2018. In the U.S., uh, Connecticut is the only state that has implemented a, a version of a minimum uh, price on alcohol. That's been fought bitterly by 
uh, Total Wine and Spirits or, or that, that big beverage seller um, there. So they've done it. Uh, I, I think it's too soon to know what the outcomes of, of that have been. A lot of the research that has been done on this has looked at Canada, where in British Columbia they have set a minimum uh, price on alcohol. They found that a 10% increase in average minimum price would result in a range of an 8% reduction in consumption, a 9% reduction in hospital emissions, and a 32% reduction in wholly alcohol-caused deaths alone. So, and that's just those specific deaths. We're not even talking about the um, extra benefits that would uh, result from, you know, decreasing uh, alcohol-related uh, mortality or traffic deaths or uh, the prevention of uh, STDs, things like that. So I think there are a range of downstream benefits that we can see from increasing the minimum price. You know, I, I have this sense, so I'm older than you. Uh, and I was, you know, alive and just a kid in the 80s. Um, but, I, you know, I recall going through the country, going through this phase where um, drinking and driving um, was a major public health campaign. And of course, people are probably still familiar with Mothers Against Drunk Driving. And I feel like they really came to prom prominence in the 80s and perhaps the early 90s as well. And I know their work continues, don't want to diminish that. But I feel like between that, um, between the, I would say, diminishment of, of that I perceive in the culture uh, of that campaign and in the sense that alcohol is much of it has much of an impact on society and the advertising. Uh, so back in the day, uh, I don't know exactly when this change was made, but it used to be that alcohol, that um, you know, hard liquor could not be advertised on television, for example, um, or at least it was um, an industry standard where they didn't. I'd have to go back and look that up. Um, but then at some point, I believe it was in the 90s or early 2000s, uh, where suddenly they could advertise them. Um, and so I think that's influencing the culture as well. But at the same time, based on the stats that you just shared, clearly alcohol has, uh, still has um, a tremendous impact um, on society, even though I perceive that it doesn't get, uh, that, that we don't have an appreciation um, as a society for just how badly it, it affects us what do you think? Why do you think, am I, am I perceiving it the same way from my 43-year-old eyes that, that you do from your younger eyes? And why do you think that we've um, gone through this evolution? It's a, it's a great perspective to have. It, just to on that point, what caught my interest in this whole subject was an article featured in The Atlantic um, titled, America Has a Drinking Problem. Mm -hmm. um, and that really chronicled America's up and down bender, if you will, uh, with alcohol and, and, our, and our history as a country um, to it. And so I think that, uh, one, that was a self-imposed ban that the spirits industry did that wasn't legal. So they just decided to go um, uh, whole hog on, on advertising um, after the 1990s. So and some interesting statistics from that article point to that, you know, from 1999 to 2017, uh, alcohol-related deaths more than doubled, um, up to more than 70,000 uh, in that time. Um, and of course, like with most things uh, that we're coming to realize in 2021, uh, the pandemic exacerbated this, where by February, more than a quarter of Americans said that they were drinking more on average than before the pandemic. So I think for, for me and from my perspective, 
Um, you know, I've been, been accustomed to, you know, having social happy hours on, on Zoom over this pandemic. And uh, I think the rise, particularly among those who either earn a promotion or, or um, make more income, that drinking is, is a form of social cohesion during, during this time and as a way of getting together. But I think it's often overlooked in terms of its negative side, side effects and consequences. So I think this is something that we should appreciate and, and hopefully can appreciate more coming out of uh, COVID. So that's where I hope it goes. Well, this is uh, a great idea. Um, last question for you. If we did a poll right now on, on this question, shall a minimum price for alcohol be set in order to accomplish X, Y, and Z in the interest of public health among registered voters in Colorado, what number do you think we'd get? 15%. <laughs> I'm slightly more optimistic, but yeah, I think, I think it would, uh, I think it'd be a challenging issue um, to convince people on, but it just shows we have work to do, right? That's right. Thank you very much, Stuart. Thank you, Jake. Always a pleasure. In the number two slot, we have Sabrina Pacha, who is the director of Healthy Air and Water Colorado. Sabrina Pacha, welcome. You're a repeat guest. I am. I'm back. Uh, but just in case people don't know who you are, uh, what do you do for Healthy Air Colorado? I'm the director of Healthy Air and Water Colorado, which is Healthier Sister Org that focuses on mitigating the health impacts of climate change. And here we go. Give me your pitch on your idea. Yes. So my idea is intended to create denser living areas to combat climate change and affordable housing crisis. And I think the way we get there is by banning single family zoning. So for those not familiar with zoning rules. What do you mean by banning single-family zoning? Yeah, so I'm very new to this concept as well. And at first, I actually did not believe in this. My partner is all about um, building up in multifamily homes. And at first, I thought, that's that's crazy. That's not what Colorado is about. Colorado is about wide open space. We've got to maintain um, the American dream of people having homes with lawns. Uh, but of course, I work in climate change policy. And so I started um, really thinking through this idea. And of course, Denser living creates less transit areas. So that started getting me more intrigued in this idea of um, what we could do if we started eliminating single-family zoning. But to your end, your actual question about zoning, I wasn't really familiar with, with what zoning laws were and how restrictive um, development can be in cities. But uh, zoning essentially dictates what you can or can't do with your property. So as a property owner, there's actually a lot of restrictions around what you can or can't do. As a millennial, somebody who likely will never own a home and is only a renter, I'm not really familiar with that. But uh, many homeowners can't even build in their backyard an extra home if they wanted to rent that out to a renter or have their mom live there. Oftentimes that's zoned out. Um, so there's whole spaces of land in Denver and in Colorado where you might have a large property, but you can only build one home that can only be used by one family. So that's what single family zoning is. So does it mean that if you banned single family zoning, 
that for new construction, you couldn't have detached family homes? So, yeah, this is a it's a nuanced topic. And there are different ways of getting to the goal of not using property just for one home. And you can do it through a variety of zoning laws, and it depends on your city zoning laws. Usually, you don't outright ban single-family zoning. What you do is you just allow property owners to choose what they want to do with that land. So you're not dictating no more single-family units or homes, but you're saying, well, if I have one of these properties, for example, in Washington Park, some of those homes are really big. And it's worth, you know, maybe a million, two million dollars. No one can really buy a home like that, but maybe we could turn it into a duplex or a triplex. And so we're removing restrictions against allowing property owners to maybe turn their home into a multifamily use home. Um, But it's not, you don't necessarily have to force new development to be multifamily, although you could do that as well. And where did you get this idea from? Yeah. So like I said, my partner is uh, in the housing space, housing policy space. So he comes at this through a housing affordability perspective, which I would love to touch base on. But uh, I got convinced on this idea, thinking about it through a greenhouse gas reductions lens. And so um, obviously we know one of the main contributors to greenhouse gas pollution is transportation. And so there's a large concerted effort to um, increase electric vehicles, and increase public transit. But even having a 100% electric vehicle fleet doesn't completely reduce our greenhouse gas emissions the way that walking or biking does. And to do walking and biking, you really need things to be close together. So there's a whole variety of studies that have come out that have shown that really the best way to reduce greenhouse gas emissions is creating denser living spaces. I'll say here a 2014 London School of Economics study showed that um, with a with a blend of pro-density housing and transit policies like this, uh, cities could cut their emissions by a third by 2030. So I, I see it as an effective way of, of greenhouse gas reductions. But I also do want to touch on the affordable housing component of this because we're obviously living through a housing crisis right now, and I don't think it's just in Colorado. But when we can create more housing. We're obviously creating, we're, we're affecting the market so to have less demand so we can bring down prices of housing. And this doesn't always have to mean that it's building up. I think people are really afraid that if we get rid of zoning laws, we're going to build up and Denver is just going to become a metropolis of sky-rise buildings like Manhattan. Uh, a surprising city that doesn't have any zoning restrictions or very minimal zoning restrictions is Houston. Mm-hmm. Houston is not necessarily a bunch of sky rises, but what it allows them to do, again, is building these duplex, triplex, fourplex homes, or they have um, somewhere in the middle where they have maybe four-story apartment buildings, right, that fit in more seamlessly into um, more suburban uh, areas. And then in Houston, what you're also seeing is it's one of the cities that is still very affordable. It has one of the best um standards of living right now because it's affordable. Folks have extra income to spend on restaurants. So you're seeing a huge restaurant boom in Houston, other activities outside of just work and, and sleep. So that's how it can affect our housing crisis as well and create some more affordable housing options. And so what is the opposition to this? Well, yes. Um, 
I think we can bring this close to home and look at neighborhoods that are sprawling and open and they don't want to get rid of that land and that lifestyle of having a big backyard. But something uh, I was listening to, there's a group called Texans for Housing that's that's really leading this uh, this effort in Texas for affordable housing property rights issue. So to the folks that uh, want to keep their big backyards, that's fine. But your neighbor might want to build an ADU, an accessible dwelling unit in their backyard, and they should be able to do that. It is their property, so they should be able to decide what to do with it. Um, so while the opposition might want to have the way their big backyard, what they want to live in, that's fine, but they can't dictate what their neighbor wants to do with their property. Well, last week, I got a letter in the mail and an email from my HOA saying that we were in violation of the covenant because we kept a garbage can outside out front. This is just a, a segue to, to point out that the reason in part why we have HOAs is uh, to develop common standards. Uh, and the reason we want common standards is because when you have those, it's likely to enhance property value by keeping a, a community looking a certain way. So this is all leading me to the to the counter arguments that yeah. I assume gets brought up like, yes, you're, you have a, a right to do what you want with your property, but um, what you do with your property has an effect on the value of the property of your neighbor. So how do you share sure. that? Yeah, property value is a big one. Um, there's been a lot of studies shown that creating denser neighborhoods inherently increases the value of your property because people want to live where they work and where they play, right? So having your restaurants down the street, your grocery store right down the street, your work really close to you, that all increases your property value. Um, I mean, HOAs are to some extent a different story. The way that things look um, is, I think it's in a different category, but uh, the, the property value argument just isn't true with how people want to live their lives at this point. Um, another interesting tension of opposition. It's often local governments don't like this idea. They don't want to be told what to do by the state. Mm -hmm. So if we're trying to come at this from a state level and do some preemption laws, for example, preempting um, minimum lot sizes is another way to tackle this. There's some counties that say, if you're going to build a house, it needs to be this, the acreage needs to be this big. Um, the state can come in and preempt that. You could come in and just outright ban single-family zoning on a state level, though that's difficult. Um, the argument back to these local counties and governments that I've thought to be particularly convincing, if the rules and regulations that you are putting in place are affecting counties outside of your county, it becomes a state issue, and the state has a right to step in. Um, and that's what we're seeing right now. We see local counties and municipalities implementing these zoning regulations for single-family zoning, minimum lot sizes, minimum parking requirements, and they're creating a housing crisis and a housing shortage for the whole state. And so I think in Colorado, we see a really strong case for why the state has a right to come in with certain preemption laws that will disallow counties to move forward with these zoning regulations. And these bans, are they uh, retrospective or just going forward, as in like, for new construction, or typically is it for, does it revise current zoning uh, decisions? So uh, it 
it depends on how you look at it. Um, Because it can, it certainly can be retrospective because a a zoning law could then make what was historically just a single family home. It could allow the owner to now, like I said, build four units out of their home. So Mm -hmm. it it can be Mm -hmm. retrospective. Um, And yes, it's definitely looking forward too because it depends on on how um, how strict the policy is. But for example, in Berkeley, the law that that Berkeley passed to end single family zoning, it it does effectively eliminate any new property that's being built from being a single use building. Mm-hmm. And and it and it's, it varies on scale. I think uh, Minneapolis passed a pretty strong zoning reform bill and. There's isn't quite as strong to completely outright eliminate new uh, properties that need to be single family, but it makes it very difficult to build a single use building. So people who own homes are, are more likely to vote than people who do not own homes. And this might be something that's at the ballot or it could be at, you know, the representative city council level. I recognize that. But I'm just curious, if you were to make uh, an argument in approximately three bumper stickers uh, to <laughs> an existing homeowner for this change, how would that go? I think it's all about property rights. You should get to decide what you want to do with your property. If it makes sense for you to build an ADU and have that additional income, you should be able to do that. If you want to split your property into two units to have additional rental income, you should be able to do that. Um that's that's the only I mean, and that's that's one of the biggest ones. But then the second one, too, I think it'll create more pleasant environments and neighborhoods to live in. So we can reduce cars on the road. We can create more green space if we don't have cars on the roads. We can create more walkability. Your overall health will improve because you won't be living in high traffic areas. People will be walking and biking and theoretically using public transit. So I guess if we're doing a bumper sticker you should do what you want on your land. It's your home, your property, and your um, standard of living is going to be better. You're going to be healthier and happier living in a denser neighborhood. Sounds good. I, 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 for a second there, I was about to criticize your, your lack of brevity on the bumper stickers, but you came back and you <laughs> did it. Thank you, Sabrina. Yeah. The magnificently named Andrea Stoisablovich, our policy director here at Healthier Colorado, is next. All right, let's hear it. What's your pitch for your idea? Yeah, so mine is not um, a brand new idea by, by any means, but I think there is a particular way in passing the policy in the context of the United States. So I really wanted to talk to you uh, about drug decriminalization. Um, and I know Oregon was the first state um, in the U.S. this past fall to pass a measure by voters um, to decriminalize drugs. Um, but uh, in tandem with decriminalization, um, I wanted to look into Portugal back in the early 2000s, uh, decriminalized drugs, but they also made sure um, from a few different perspectives to Um, One, work on the stigma around drug and substance use disorders, um, treating the issue as one that is human-centered and a public health issue. Um, They also made major efforts to scale up the availability, accessibility, and quality of treatment available to folks. Um, 
worked in harm reduction efforts, um, and really a lot of data is promising that came out of those efforts. So I think I wanted to talk about it from what Portugal did um, and how we can contextualize it within the United States um, and the issues and barriers that folks might see, um, you know, if we're just looking at um, drug decriminalization without these other factors involved. So what does decriminalization mean? Does it mean that I can buy heroin at Safeway if this were, were instituted? Uh, no, not at all. Um, oh. So <laughs> it's really defined as the elimination of criminal penalties for drug use and possession of drugs for personal use, um, as well as the elimination of criminal penalties for the possession of you know, any qu- equipment uh, that might be used uh, for drug use. Um, so what Portugal did in particular is they, um, folks would still be sent to prison for, for dealing drugs or trafficking, but anyone caught with less than a 10-day supply of any drug um, would, uh, instead of you know, interacting with law enforcement or judges or courtrooms or jails, uh, instead they would meet with a panel of um, sociologists, uh, doctors who, you know, make the decision whether to refer them to drug treatment centers. Um, so it's really the nexus of treating it as, um, you know, a disease, unlike any other, other than an issue where incarceration is the, the solution. And what are the results in Portugal, Ben? Yeah. So in Portugal, um, since they passed their drug decriminalization back in 2001, um, and so some of the promising data trends um, that we have at this point in time are their drug-induced death rate um, plummeted to around five times lower than the European Union average. Their drug-related HIV infections in Portugal dropped 95%. Uh, The number of people entering treatment obviously has increased significantly uh, since decriminalization. They went from having one of the highest rates of problematic drug use in Europe before decrim uh, to having a rate of overall drug consumption that's lower in comparison with with the rest of the EU. Um, Another thing they saw that ending incarceration as a penalty, um, obviously, is that their prison overcrowding decreased. um, And some Anecdotal evidence is that, you know, the people of Portugal uh, support this policy. Uh, The perceived uh, stigma around drug use and treatment has been reduced due to policies that they have in place. So, you know, I think some promising parallels of what what Portugal has done could be implemented in the United States as well. So if this policy was implemented 20 years ago, back in 2001, and it's gone so well, why hasn't it been exported to either elsewhere in the EU or someplace beyond Oregon? Is it just traditional social stigma? What, what are the reasons? Yeah, so there are some other countries who um, have laws that are inspired by Portugal in particular. I wasn't able to do a deep dive into those countries uh, before today, but I think in the United States, you know, the history of, of what's going on here um, is important. Um, and as well as um, digging into Colorado data in particular, the Colorado Health Access Survey highlights um, several, well, let me backtrack here. It's the 2019 Colorado Health Access Survey that I'm, I'm relating back to, but it stated that roughly around a little under 100,000 Coloradans didn't get treatment or access to counseling if they self-identified as having a substance use disorder. Um, they cited several reasons, um, and one of them was including the stigma associated with substance use or dependence. Um, others were the cost of services, capacity at treatment centers, um, and 
inadequate insurance coverage. Um, but stigma, I think in the United States in particular, is um, a, a huge challenge um, when trying to, to tackle the issue, bring it to light, get people the care that they need. And then, you know, a next step is our healthcare system as a whole uh, and those insurance issues, those capacity issues, those workforce provider issues. Um, and what they did in Portugal is there was a two-year timeline period um, where they really dug into the factors around expanding access to quality treatment, um, to making sure that their medical workforce in particular was trained on how to, to treat and work with um, substance use dependent populations in particular, and to move away from you know, that stigma and shame model and treating it as a whole person. For example, at like the beginning of their intake process, they go through a myriad of socioeconomic factors um, with a person, like their housing situation, their education, um, their socioeconomic status, and then they get into any problems that they have related to, to drug use in particular. So I think taking the whole person approach, removing some of that stigma and shame, bringing you know, multiple uh, solutions to the table in terms of harm reduction, treatment. Um, and also in Portugal, they, there's no penalties for folks who potentially relapse or use drugs. Again, it's an understanding of the disease um, that they have in place that it's not going to be a linear or, or, or easy track to solve. Let's talk about the politics of this. As you know, um, you and I and others on the team have worked on harm reduction policy, and it often brings together um, seemingly unlikely stakeholders um, in support of some of these policies. For example, police are, are sometimes supportive of what I'll call liberalization of drug policy. Thinking about this proposal, are there either examples of interesting stakeholder uh, coalition building, or would you be able to speculate about what kind of coalition could be built to pass something like this? Well, I think, it, you know, your point to law enforcement in particular, uh, you know, is that we can't, uh, a common line is that we can't arrest our way out of this epidemic in particular. Um, and I think uh, law enforcement and first responders are oftentimes the first folks showing up to, you know, overdose deaths, you know, dealing with these ongoing issues, um, and really get to see firsthand, um, you know, the impacts of, of substance use disorders and often untreated and exacerbated issues by proxy. Um, so I think those folks oftentimes are either maybe not as loudly as we'd always want, but allies um, in pointing to this. Um, I think Data related to Colorado in particular for 2020 shows that our overdose deaths were uh, among the highest ever recorded on our state. So they increased over 25 percent from 2019 to 2020, uh, going from 1,072 overdose deaths to 1,477. Um, and so we know that we can't arrest our way out of this problem. And I think shifting the framing to a public health issue um, to treating it as a disease um, is something that truly resonates with, with law enforcement since they see it so often firsthand. Um, so I think, at least in Colorado, I can't speak for other states, but I think those, those are folks who can be allies in the harm reduction fight that folks might not immediately suspect. But I think, you know, we have to try different solutions um, to address, you know, the problem and frame it differently so that we keep people alive and, and keep people healthy. 
So there's the stakeholder politics and then there's the voter politics. You know, it would remain to be seen whether something like this would actually be on a ballot. Um, and as you know, we've pulled on a lot of issues kind of that circle this issue, I'll say. You know, we've pulled on um, whether or not the state should forgive um, and expunge records of people who have been um, convicted of marijuana offenses in the past. We've you know, done polling on the establishment of overdose pre- prevention sites, et cetera. So you have, a, you have a sense of like what those numbers look like. I'm just curious, what do you think the level of voter support would be for a proposal like this? Um, I think pretty low. Mr. Williams, I think in the United States context, you know, unfortunately, but I, I think a reality check is that our dominant approach to, to drug use has been for decades now uh, for drug use is criminalization and harsh enforcement. Um, and we know there's well over a million arrests per year for drug possession for personal use. Uh, disproportionately, those are targeted at community of col- communities of color. Um, and we know, you know, as you previously stated, that the impact of these arrests and convictions goes well beyond um, incarceration. You know, once folks are out, um, there's a range of barriers that are put in place in terms of their access to housing, education, employment, and the ripple effect that this has throughout families and communities we know is devastating, too. Um, but I think we need to have a different again, framing of, of the conversation, but I think what's so hard, at least in the United States, is that it is historically and culturally in, ingrained in terms of the antiquated messages that we have around drug use um, that perpetuates really the stigma and shame that folks have in even talking about it and, and gaining treatment about it. And so it really is a tough paradigm to shift to say, you know, that we have been treating a disease or the solution for a disease is incarceration, right? When it really should be rooted in public health um, and the different ways that, you know, addiction manifests and and how it is different than other diseases and the ways that it needs to be treated. Um, And so I feel like we have outside of, you know, just pure policy, uh, we have a reckoning to do as a country in terms of how we have um, you know, treated this issue in particular, um, and how do we elevate a different narrative uh, about it? You know, that resonates around you know the family dinner table. Um, so I think it's a large task at hand, um, and so I don't have all the answers on that piece in particular. But I think we have to begin to shift the narrative and how we frame things, and, and how we have it be a human-centered, health-oriented approach in addressing this issue. Finally, we have fellow Michigander Michael Ruddock, our Healthier Colorado policy manager, who has a progressive idea with roots in a state that you might not expect. Excellent. Let's get right to it. Give me your pitch on what your idea is. Well, I think most of us are pretty picky about how we store our money. Uh, Maybe we use a big bank with a nice app that allows us to do everything online. Maybe a credit union with people from our communities we know that work there. Um, Maybe whatever bank has the best car loans or mortgage rates. So why don't we apply that same logic um, and same choosiness when we consider how we as a state or local government stores and invests our money? Are we getting the best deal? Running a government 
that provides services that keep people healthy, happy, and safe takes a lot of funding. So should we be relying on mega banks on Wall Street like Bank of America or Wells Fargo, um, the same that we may have credit cards with, to finance our future? Are there any other options? And there are, actually. So you're talking about where the government keeps its money? Yes. Ah, okay. And more. Not only where we keep our money, but how we invest our state employees' pension accounts, how we borrow money uh, to pay for big projects like infrastructure and community health and community development. Okay. So let's hear more about this. I have a lot of questions for for you. First, it sounds like you're proposing is like a public bank. Exactly. And does a public bank like this exist anywhere else? It does. There is one in the continental United States, um, and that is in North Dakota of all places, actually. So the Bank of North Dakota was created in 1919. Uh, The farmers there were worried that private banks on the East Coast were dictating terms of their livelihood and economic sovereignty. And so they worked with the legislature to create a state bank that would provide in-house, in-state, local resources and loans to help prop up um, their agricultural economy. That bank still exists to this day, and it's actually the only one. And so the fundamentals of a public bank versus a private bank, are they the same in in, in the case of being a resource for capital um, for which they get some level of return? But the difference is obviously the, the the ownership of the bank and perhaps also the profit motive of the institution, which might affect the rates and the rules applied to these loans? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, Easily put, the government owns the bank, just like we own the snow plows, we own the infrastructure that builds the roads, we own the fire trucks, we'd own the bank, and we'd oversee the capital. So the benefits there is that owning an oversight and control of the bank would mean cutting out middlemen, uh, funds in the bank would be distributed according to community needs, whether that's child care facilities, investment in green energy, infrastructure upgrades, or whatever it is. Um, larger banks often rely on higher interest rates. Um, and there isn't that you know, connection to the local community um, when deciding who gets a loan. Maybe we saw that during um, the American Rescue Plan, PPP loans that were dispersed through banks, oftentimes Smaller community businesses were kind of put to the back of the line, while bigger businesses with more resources jumped to the front to secure those loans. With a stronger local banking infrastructure system, um, you could have more community-driven loan recipients. Because you're not driven by shareholder profits, interest rates can be lower. Uh, We've seen in North Dakota, for example, that um, I believe currently they oversee just shy of $4 billion in a loan portfolio that spans four main pillars ranging from business loans, residential loans, agriculture, and even student loans. Um, So they've actually continued to grow the principal in their funds since 2013. They were the only state, um, North Dakota was, with the Bank of North Dakota to uh, not have a budget shortfall following the Great Recession in 08 because they had a more stable reliable and community-owned source of capital that they could rely on. Okay, so I'm going to um, absorb all this in these next 10 seconds, and then I'm going to try to present a counter-argument to you. And you can tell me 
if and why my counter argument is wrong. This is just for academic purposes. I don't necessarily believe this, but you ready? Sure. Um, public banking is a bad idea um, for a few important reasons. First, unlike with private banking, this essentially costs taxpayers upfront. The government has to actually invest more money to create this infrastructure. So that's um, an instant demerit. Second, while you cite as a benefit the fact that these uh, a, a public bank would be more community-driven and equitable, the profit motive of a private bank has upsides, including uh, the fact that they'll be more discerning and exacting about risk. And so definitionally, this public bank might be uh, less risk averse. And at the end of the day, and this brings me to my final reason, taxpayers are on the hook uh, for the failings of, of a public bank. So there's a double risk to taxpayers, one on the front end and one in the back end. Those are fair questions. More upfront cost, I believe, uh, is what you mentioned first. Um, there have been a few states that have commissioned studies to look at what that would cost, and you're absolutely right. They do cost uh, more upfront. You make that money back uh, when you're committed. Um, the last round of GO bonds that we did here in Denver, I, I believe, were around $900 million. And estimates have showed that over the course of that bond life, uh, we could pay over $700 million in interest, which almost doubles the entire cost of that bond. So that $700 million um, estimate could be used to finance a bunch of other stuff, more bike lanes, more community health programs, more park upgrades, et cetera. So yes, maybe we do have to, to front more money uh, on the front end, but it could be made up on the back end. That's the case uh, in life a lot of times. If you invest more money up front to keep up uh, you know, the health of your teeth, you're going to save in the long run as opposed to, to dragging that cost out by having poor dental care. The second issue uh, involving risk, I think uh, people across the country, especially since 2008, have wanted to actually rein in some of the uh, risky nature of the big banks, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Chase. I'm not an expert in in finance by any stretch of the matter, but when we had when we saw 2008, you know, we had, we saw retirement accounts that were tied up and dragged down. People, you know, have their retirement accounts, entire states, uh, rainy day funds were hollowed out by some of those risky um, moves by banks. And like I said, you know, the Bank of North Dakota has shown that they're able to. Um, because of their conservative model, because of local stabilized rates, maybe grow in a more consistent manner while minimizing risk uh, and still providing North Dakotans there with essential services and business residential loans uh, that propel that state forward and provide a general level of healthy, happy, and fulfilled lives. What do you think about the possibility of, uh, one, a public bank's uh, participating as a student loan lender, like right now in this country, we have, we have a system that includes federally backed private loans. But you know, what about public banks uh, playing a role as a as a student loan lender? What do you think about that possibility? And then, second, what do you think um, about the potential role of public banks playing a role as a, as a micro lender? You know, we have a, a big problem in this country still with uh, so called payday lenders who. Uh, charge exorbitant rates um, to people who are in crisis uh, effectively, um, and they just need a little bit of money to get out of a pinch or get through the next week. 
Is there any potential for a public bank on either of those fronts? We've seen we've seen in North Dakota that there is a uh, a definite strengthening of the local and overall banking system, uh, which includes successfully getting loans to people who need them the most. So I could see definitely how uh, a public banking system could strengthen the local banking and local local loan disbursement in other places as well. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hope you enjoyed that format. Pretty please rate and subscribe to the podcast. We'll see you next time.